You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. As we continue in our Advent series, the the word of the week for Advent this week is joy, joy. So uh, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 46, this is uh, also known as the Magnificat, where Mary is praying, speaking to Elizabeth and to God about having Jesus. So join with me uh, silently in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. And yet the rich he's sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, dear Lord, help, help uh, us to read this faithfully this morning. Help us to engage with this prayer uttered 2,000 years ago from a young, soon-to-be mother. Um, Lord, we thank you for these words that you have, have given to us, to, that are written from Mary to you, and they're from you to us. Help us uh, to celebrate and read them with joy this morning. In your holy name, we pray. Amen. Uh, Man, well, I normally don't like sermon titles, but I did put one on this one. It is titled, Mary, Did You Know? Like the song? Yeah? Uh Uh-huh. And uh, the answer is yes. She did. She did know. It's very simple. That's it. That's it. We can all, we can go straight to communion. Uh, No, but as much as uh, that song is easy to rag on, yeah, this, this, her Magnificat, her song right here in Luke, kind of resoundingly tells us that, yes, she did know quite a lot. And it's actually one of the most interesting things about this passage is that Mary is this, you know, supposedly like rural, potentially quite young girl who has like no formal training in theology. She has no like college degree, even probably not a lot of schooling. And yet she gives us this piece of biblical poetry that's just beautiful. And like almost the whole thing is quotes to the Old Testament. Like this girl knows her scripture. Like, this is just so encouraging to me. And uh, she, she is, this is a joyful, joyful passage. And that's our focus on Advent this week is joy. You know, these traditional themes that the church follows, has followed for over a thousand years in this Advent process. And joy is the one this week. And Mary's prayer here is extremely, extremely uh, joyful. And I think it shows us some helpful things when we think about what it means to truly have joy versus uh, kind of the cheap alternatives we have, you know, the like cellophane, plastic, happiness, uh, Christmas versus actual joy in the Bible. This passage shows us that we can rejoice in magnifying the Lord. We can rejoice in his justice. We can rejoice in remembering what he's done for us. Uh, so let's, let's dig in right away, looking at the first couple of verses. Uh, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has 
looked upon the humble estate of his servant. That just means he's looked upon someone who hasn't, uh, is not high in the world. Uh, and from behold, n- now on all generations, everybody is going to call me blessed. For he who is mighty, that's God, he's done great things for me. Holy is his name. This is the, the Magnificat, if you've heard that before, that title for this, comes from this first thing where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And what she's doing here, when she rejoices in magnifying God and his glory, it's, oh, it's so special. Uh, you know, I like to think about Maybe you like to have a, your dad or your brother or your husband or, or you have a bunch of tools. And, uh, you know, there's certain tools that you don't get to use very often. But there are those tools that are for very specific jobs. And whenever you get to use them, you're like, yes, this is the time. This is the time. I like working on bikes. And there's a lot of specific bike tools that, you know, you don't get to use the bottom bracket uh, push press thing very often. But when you do, you're like, oh, it is time to use it. Uh, and, and there's got to be a certain joy in using the right tool for these very specific jobs. What Mary is doing here is doing what she and you and I have been designed to do. She's more than a tool. You are more than a tool. But she's doing what she's been designed for, like a tool designed for a very specific job. Because actually, like, we've been designed to do exactly what she's doing here. We've been designed to magnify the Lord, to rejoice in his name. You know, the, the, this old document that we follow, we agree with as a church, the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism, tells us that the, it's a summary of what we think about from Scripture. And the first question is, what is the chief end of man? What is the point of being alive? The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's a really simple idea that the reason you were created, like if you were a tool, you're more than a tool, but if you were, the point of your existence is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to glorify and enjoy God forever. And that's exactly what Mary says right here. She says, my soul itself, like not just me, not just my brain, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's an that's a interesting word, right? Magnify. Like that's a word we have on the door over there, if you're not aware. Our three like big words as a church are to magnify, live, and engage. We want to magnify uh, God's glory. We want to live as God's people, and we want to engage in God's mission. And she says, I want to, my soul cannot stop, but to magnify, to magnify the Lord. And my spirit, again, not just like my brain, my spirit itself rejoices in God, my Savior. She's trying to say with all of who she is, I'm magnifying God's glory. Uh, this word means like to make something bigger. It, mean, it meant that then they didn't have magnifying glasses like we do. But the word uh, in Greek means to make something bigger, to exalt it, to lift it up, to increase, to amplify. And she's saying my soul is trying to increase, trying to amplify, trying to enlarge and enhance God's glory. And that's actually what we think like all of scripture tells us we've been created to do. And then she says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Again, what we think the whole picture of scripture points us towards as like the reason you were made is to glorify and enjoy God forever. Which is a really simple phrase, but just think about the, the happiness and the joy that can come from doing what you are designed to do. You know, we all know what it feels like to go against the grain in a system, but what is it like to go with the design, to go with what you were made for? 
And this is, this is what Mary is, is living in. She's in that moment where she has been created for this. Like all of salvation history comes towards her and the birth of Christ. And she is fulfilling her role in that uh, grand, grand story. Uh, and she says, I want to magnify God's glory. There's also something really interesting here. You know, uh, this is kind of a, a piece of poetry. And in the Bible, the poetry normally doesn't rhyme because it wasn't written in English. Uh, and, and also, it didn't really rhyme in their language either because their language, kind of like Spanish, had a lot of the same endings. And so it would not be very interesting if you tried to rhyme everything with O. Nacho, sombrero, like the, my Spanish isn't very good. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it would not be a very good, uh, very good rhyming. So biblical poetry uses other devices. And so one of the things that biblical poetry does, they'll line up two phrases right next to each other. And one phrase will sort of explain the other one a little bit better. And that's what's happening right here. She says, my soul magnifies and my spirit rejoices. Like she's contrasting her soul and her spirit. She's not like making a difference there. They're both, she's just trying to say all of who I am as a person is involved in this. And then my ma I'm magnifying God's glory and I'm rejoicing in who he is. And then she uses two different names for God. She says, Lord, and then God, my savior. It's this like, this is the rhyming of biblical poetry. This is a poetic device to let us, she's just trying to show us with all of her energy uh, that she's feeling this really, really big feeling that she loves God. She is rejoicing in magnifying the Lord. And there's hope there that if we're created to glorify God, if we're created to amplify his glory, to talk about how good God is, because the whole of creation itself is declaring that, is groaning that, then actually when we're doing what we've been designed to do, we're going to be really joyful in that process. You know, we're going to be really happy when we get to do what we are designed to do, right? We can picture a runner that's amazing at running, just loving to run. We can picture a carpenter amazing at carpentry, loving to do what they do. Anything that you are good at, right, you might enjoy doing that. And, and this is what we've been designed to do, is to glorify God, to magnify his glory. And that's what Mary's on about here. You know, she's got a really hard situation in this story. You know, she's this young woman. She has been visited by angels and told she's going to get pregnant and it's not going to be from her fiance. And actually, she's going to get pregnant before they get married. And this is in a really, really, you know, stiff society where she can be not only divorced, but like stoned for getting pregnant outside of marriage. And she has, her response to this is joy. Like what, what happens to her physically? She gets sent away to live with her cousin, Aunt Elizabeth. Sorry, I forgot how she's related to Elizabeth. But she gets sent away to live with her relative, Elizabeth, up in the hills during her pregnancy. And it's, you know, like you can sort of picture this stuffy society saying like, well, we got this girl that's pregnant. Like, I don't know, send her away. And so like she gets very sad and she gets sent away up to live with Elizabeth. I don't know if that's exactly what's happening, but she's not with her family. She's not with her fiance, Joseph. She, and she's there with Elizabeth and yet, her and Elizabeth in the previous verses get together and they talk about how excited they are. Elizabeth, John the Baptist, if you remember, moves around in Elizabeth's womb and Elizabeth comes to Mary and says like, oh my goodness, like you are going to be the mother to the Lord of the universe. And Mary's response to that is this prayer itself. Uh, it's just this crazy, difficult situation that I can't imagine being in. 
And her response is not just to say, like, woe is me, but to actually magnify and glorify God and to rejoice in this. And this is, again, always the case with children, right? Like, as much as, like, getting that scary test back has got to be a scary thing. We haven't done that. But uh, there's also joy there, too. Mary is excited at this new life entering the world. Uh, and she, she says in verse 48, she says, look at, look at me. God has noticed, God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. God, the creator of the universe, has noticed me, Mary, this girl without a last name, this girl from ancient, the ancient Near East that lives as an oppressed people conquered by the Roman Empire. She's not a queen. She's not a princess. The creator of the universe has looked upon the estate of uh, the humble estate of his servant. And behold, now all the people forever, all the generations are going to call me blessed. Like, that's amazing. Mary is recognizing what God has done for her. I think what's one of the things hopefully we can take some time to do this season is to recognize how has the creator of the universe looked upon me specifically? Because that's something we believe as Christians is that with each of you, with every single one of us, God has looked upon you specifically and said, I want you. I want you specifically and I'm willing to die for you. Behold, he's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. Saying God is strong, God is all powerful, God knows everything and yet he's done wonderful things for me? How can that be? Like that's, that's rejoicing. She's rejoicing in, uh, in, in this fact that the same thing we all can. When we realize that God has reached out of time and space to put on real flesh, that's what we're celebrating in Advent, to put on humanity itself with zits and all the other sicknesses and everything else. Jesus put on real flesh to save you specifically. And that's, that's Mary's rejoicing because she, she says, how can this be for me, right? And, and she goes to Elizabeth and she and Elizabeth are talking about this and Elizabeth affirms it and says, you know, blessed are you that you would believe in this. Uh, and, and of course she's going to be happy. Mary has so much joy in magnifying the Lord and remembering what God has done for her and doing what she's been designed to do. Which, uh, so that's, that's our first point. Our second one is that there's joy in this in justice. There's joy in God's justice uh, looking at verse 50, there's a little 50, 51, 52, and 53. This poem sort of switches away from Mary's personal reflection and into her thinking about God's works of justice and mercy and reorganization in the whole world. How this son that's going to be born to her is actually going to mean massive change for all of human history and massive change in their lives uh, right then. You know that feeling like when you start cleaning, maybe you've kind of put off some like reorganization products, projects, and then you start like moving around the furniture and you're like, oh my goodness, it's go time. When I was in college one day, my, my roommate, Stephen Rice, freshman year, went to class late afternoon and we were like, you know what would be good to do while Stephen's in class? What if we tried to double loft the beds? So we, so we put a lofted bed on top of another lofted bed, and the final one was like four inches from the ceiling. And he came back, and he was like, that's not going to work. We're going to have to change that. And then 
we got so excited that it was finally time to reorganize the furniture, uh, and we had to fix it before we went to sleep, that we ended up staying up like all night long, reorganizing our tiny little, you know, 10 by 10 dorm room over and over and over again. Uh, you know this feeling when it's go time, when you start moving the furniture around, when things are happening, when those projects and things you've been waiting for are finally getting changed. Stuff is finally happening. And uh, this is Mary here. She knows this is the time we've been waiting for. See, she doesn't live in a free society and she can't do whatever she wants. And yet she says now is the time when God is going to move in real life in ways that I can see when God's justice is going to start being visible uh, to, to even like the class structures that she's talking about. You know, this is all of Advent is this represents for us this waiting for Christ to return again. For them, they had this 400 years of waiting from the end of basically the Old Testament until Christ's coming. And they're waiting, 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 praying for God to bring about his justice, saying, as we often do, where are you, God? Where are you in these trying times? Where are you in our tragedy? And, and Mary, in these verses, rejoices at God's coming justice. She rejoices at God's arrival and what that's going to bring. How he's going to, this coming Messiah, Christ, and we wait for this in his return, is going to undo all the evils of this world. This is, you know, the real thing in Advent. We're waiting for Christmas Day. We're also waiting for Christ's return because we are, can't wait for Jesus to come and undo the very obvious and present uh, evils of sin in this world, right? From sickness and death to people driving like maniacs and all the other things in between. We are waiting, uh, saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And, and Mary has been waiting for this uh, as well. In, in these verses, she starts to talk about how, how he's going to accomplish this. She says, you know, his mercy is for those who fear him. Mercy is this word uh, that, it's the same word that showed up in like the Colosseum when gladiators would fight and they would have the guy pinned down on the ground and a sword at his throat and they would look to Caesar, the leader, and say like, mercy, yes, no. Like, and, and mercy was almost considered a weakness in the ancient world, you know, like to, to avert the sword, to turn away punishment, that, that meant you were weak. And yet the Bible says mercy is like one of the key attributes of God. Like God has us, has us at the point of the sword. He could put us there in an instant. And he says, I'm, I'm turning away my judgment and wrath from you. God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Verse 51, he's shown strength with his arm. Kind of a weird phrase, like what's God's? It's not a literal arm, but God has shown that he is powerful. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has taken people who are proud and said, you know, stop thinking you're a big man. Like he, he, he takes them down in their innermost being, in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's taken people and pulled them out of their palaces and out of their houses and said, you thought you were something special. Uh, you're not anymore. He's, but he's exalted those of humble estate. He means he's lifted up people who the world didn't see as, as very important. And he has filled, filled the hungry people with good things. And yet the rich he's sent away empty. 
Now, if you're reading these and you're like, what on earth is going on here? Uh, or that sounds like God's a little bit of a social justice warrior or something. Like that's, that's actually here. That's in the passage. Uh, Mary is celebrating that God is going to change the status quo. And this is part of the Old Testament prophets. It's part of Luke. It is in Luke over and over and over again. You know, I had to do this Bible trivia test to like get ordained as a pastor. And you do all these like different verses and you've got to identify where the verse is from. If it's in the New Testament and it's, if it's like a story where Jesus is talking about like women or like the poor or like injustice, it's always in Luke because Luke is all about this. And this is right here at the center of Luke's, at the beginning of Luke's gospel that Mary would pray Mary would pray and say, God, shake things up. Take like the high and mighty and cast them down and take the poor people and lift them up. This is like what Jesus has come to do is, you know, this theological term that's kind of fun is the upside down kingdom. That Jesus comes to take what we thought was important and to flip it on its head. To take the people we thought didn't matter and to put them in places of authority. That this is Christianity. Christ is going to establish his kingdom, and yet it's never the way we expect it to be. And this should be both comforting and maybe a little scary for us. It's comforting because as we feel oppressed, as we feel the injustices of this world, we can know that Christ will come and establish true justice. You know what do I mean by that? Biblical justice is more than just equality. It's more than just fairness. It's more than any of those things. It's a true setting right of everything. It's a true setting right of everything for prosperity and for flourishing and according to God's definition of right, not ours. And, and as maybe I'm sure all of us feel the injustices of the world around us, you know, systems that you're frustrated with, things that you've interacted with on a personal level that are just unjust. We have this amazing promise in Christ that he, and we can rejoice in the fact that he's coming to set everything right. He's coming to set everything as it should be. And yet there's also a challenge for us here. You know, Luke is written for Theophilus, this rich guy who pays for Luke to go and gather all these facts and put together a gospel. I think Theophilus, like us, would have had some hard things to hear uh, from Luke's gospel. You know, as, as suburban Americans, we're like the richest people to have ever lived in human history. I don't remember all the stats, but I know that if your family owns like one car, you're in like the 98% of the world's, like you're the 2%, you know, you're, you're like just absolutely uh, ridiculously blessed. You know, so many people out there living on less than like a dollar a day. There's these stats you can look up that are just like terrifying because it means that no matter who you're comparing yourself to uh, that you know, you and us, just by living here, here and now, right now, with indoor plumbing and all the other things we have, are the absolute 1% of the richest people in all of human history. And yet, what does Luke have to say to that? Luke says, like, God is coming to shake things up. God's coming to change things. God's not against wealth at all, but God is against us resting in our wealth and instead of him. You know, one, one maybe a helpful thought thing to think through is that um, what would I, if Jesus actually did come back this Christmas, let's say Jesus returns finally and triumphantly on Christmas Day, what would I, would I be like kind of bummed that he didn't wait a little longer for? 
It, maybe that sounds awful, but I know that there's probably some things for each of us where I'm like, well, man, like that would be a little bit sad because I've got Christmas presents I wouldn't have had to play with yet. Like, or I would be like a little bit sad because like there's things I wouldn't have gotten to do yet. And like, I would be happy, but also I would be like maybe a little like, well, could you wait like another month and then I would have had my birthday at least. Like there's all these things we could sort of think through. Whatever those things are for you, like what is it that you would be a little bit bummed about if Jesus came back like today that you would miss out on? Those things, and if he, you know, shakes up wealth, he shakes up all this stuff, those things, as good as they might be, I'm sure a lot of them are actually quite good things. They can, and maybe are even, easily idols, things that we can put before God. You know, an idol is anything, often a good thing, that we put in front of God. And, and there's something really, like, I think that thought test to me is really helpful in thinking, like, what am I valuing more than the return of Christ himself? Like, and all, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, like, what am I valuing more than Jesus? And in this passage, Mary shows us that when Jesus comes back, like our world, our houses, you know, our jobs, our professions, none of them are going to be the same anymore. And it's going to be positive. That's going to be a good thing. There's going to be true justice. God, but God is going to shake things up. And this is something that is hopefully encouraging as much as it is scary. It's hopefully encouraging for us. She's rejoicing in this because God's picture of justice is always better than what we can imagine right now. You know, we tend to take good things and then want to hang on to them in the status quo and just say like, if I'm doing well, let's not shake up the system because things are all right right now. The, the rejoicing in this and the happiness is that God's picture of human flourishing, the new heavens and the new earth, is much better than anything we can imagine. God's picture of human flourishing when he changes things up is much greater than, than what uh, we can imagine. And, and this is why we can rejoice in this coming new kingdom that Christ is ushering in, that we're waiting for in Advent. Our third, third big point, the final two verses, is that we can take joy in remembering his promises. Verse 54, she now switches from talking about how God's going to change things up to remembering back to what God has already done. Says, she says, he has helped his servant Israel. Now she's talking about a whole group of people because that's Israel's like the nation, right? It's, it's a person, but it's also the nation. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his God's mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She's remembering back on what God has already done. Maybe even thinking of specific favorite stories. You know, we can think of what are like your favorite Christmas memories. You know, what are your favorite things that you remember? What's the song? The tales of the glories of Christmas is long, long ago. Like, what are your favorite things that you remember from Christmas? And when we think back about those like moments, they are joyful memories, right? Like, sitting by the fire and watching It's a Wonderful Life and eating, you know, Chex Mix or something, whatever those things are for you. Those are happy times. And uh, we, we take joy when we remember, like, previous blessed seasons. And there's actually something really special and important about, about remembering, like, previous victories, previous things where God has been faithful. You know, the, 
she's reminding us here, she's saying we should remember what God has said and done because he's going to keep his word. As she looks back to God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to Israel, to all of his people and how he's going to remember these promises forever, she's rejoicing and saying, thank goodness. Like we can read our Old Testament and rejoice in the fact that God is 100% faithful to his promises. You know, and as we like trust in that, as we, that, that means for us though that we need to actually read our Old Testament. Like there's enormous help and comfort as we read these stories of what God has done for his people and how time and time again, even in the darkest periods of Israel's history, God shows up for them. And as we read that as Christians, you know, we, we can remember that over and over and over again, God shows up for his people. God's covenant faithfulness helps us know that he's going to be there for us now when we need him. God's covenant faithfulness is its preventative medicine for the grief that we know we're going to encounter. As we read these Old Testament stories, as we learn about how God has showed up for his people from generation to generation to generation, we can rejoice that God's going to do that for us too. Even when we encounter just absolute tragedy in our lives. Uh, The steadfast love of God is always going to be there for us. I used to work at an outdoors store, kind of like REI, and uh, we would have, we had a really good return policy, and we'd always have people come in and bring things, try to return them that they clearly had just used for a long time, and then said like, oh, I'd like to return this. I was like, that's not really how that works. But uh, often we would, much to my chagrin, have to like kind of stand behind that warranty and say like, well, we said you could return it whenever, no questions asked, so I guess we'll take it back now. Thank you for your gross boots. Um, And we'd have to like stand behind that. But then occasionally there were times where it was like, no, you clearly used this for not like the intended purpose, so we're not going to take that. Uh, God has a perfect warranty, a 100% return policy all of the time. You know, God always stands behind what he has said. Like as many bad warranties and things as there are out there in the world, or as many good ones, God's is 100% all of the time. The Old Testament is absolutely chock full of stories of God making promises to his people and then standing behind those. Verse 55 says, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. This is really interesting because it's the Bible talking about the Bible. You know, we're reading the Bible and it's saying, as he spoke in the Bible to our fathers. Anyways, that's interesting to me. Uh, But we have these words and Mary's talking about them. And and as we think about what are some of the big promises that God has made? What are some of these big like covenant pacts? You know, there's Adam and there's this promise of that if you don't eat uh, if you eat of that tree, then you'll die. And, and that's where we see sin enter the world. And yet there's this also this promise of this coming Savior that we see in Christ. We've got Noah, right? He's not going to commit genocide for everybody again. We've got Abraham. He's going to choose Abraham's descendants and bless them to be a blessing. He's going to keep one of David's descendants on the throne forever. There's a lot of these. Um, but the, the main covenant formula promise in the Old Testament that shows up over and over and over again is where God says, you know, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the main covenant like recipe formula that God uses almost every time he talks about covenants. He says, I'm going to be with you. 
I'm going to be your God. And I'm a God who has all the power and all the strength and all the authority. And you're going to be my people. Like, you're mine. I'm with you. And I'm going to protect you. You know, there, God, is, God is with us in a protective way. I will be your God and you will be my people. And this goes, shows up from Genesis to Revelation. It's at the very end of your Bible. You can go and look around back there. It's in there. That I will be your God and you will be my people. And it says in heaven, we're going to be face to face with God. That we'll get to be his people, but without fear anymore. Like without that bad kind of, a, without his holiness killing us because we have sin in our lives. Uh, we'll get to be with God face to face. And this is the, this promise and what Mary is remembering is that God promises to be our God forever and he promises to keep us as his people forever. As, as he spoke to our fathers and his offspring forever. <laughs> I love that she throws that in there. That this is something that looks forwards well past her lifetime. That these promises are more than just for her, which is good for us because Maybe the, you know, the skeptic is reading this and thinking like, well, this says in the verse, it says it's for Abraham and his offspring, and I'm not Jewish, right? <laughs> uh, so the, the reason why we can trust in this, you know, the, the New Testament is actually quite clear. It says that Christ came first for Jew, but also for Gentile. First for people descended from Abraham, but also for everyone else. And this is part of the like, good news of the gospel, that Jesus doesn't come for us based on who we're born to. He doesn't come for us based on our family lineage or like how good your parents were as Christians. He doesn't come to you based on like how good you are as Christians. Christ accepts you and comes into the world for you in real human form to give you eternal salvation based off of nothing that you do. That's amazing. We, hopefully we can't say that without smiling because that is where our true joy comes from in Advent. That Christ enters into human form, enters into true humanity to offer you and me salvation based on nothing that I'm going to do. Based not on my bloodline, not on how religious my parents are, not on where I grew up, but just purely because he says, I love you that much. Will you follow me? That's the gospel right there. Uh, and so we rejoice as we, we remember his promises. We remember that he said, I'm going to send my Christ. I'm going to send my Messiah. I'm going to send my son into the world. And of course, he has done that. Uh, this is Mary's words. Yes, she did know. <laughs> Mary, Mary very much did know that her baby boy uh, would maybe not walk on water, but would deliver humanity from its sin. Uh, just such an encouraging passage here as she magnifies the Lord. She rejoices in doing so. She looks towards this kind of scary shakeup of the, the way things are, how this son of hers is going to shake up the establishment. He's going to shake up religious things. He's going to shake up money. And, and yet we rejoice in God's justice, not ours. And then we remember and we look back at the promises that God's already made and that he's already been faithful to. You know, each week at Advent, we light more of these candles. And uh, I always, at Christmas is really close to the winter solstice, right? You know, as it gets darker and darker and darker, we're lighting more and more candles. I just think that's super cool. And uh, it's just like this picture of getting brighter and brighter and brighter as Christ is coming into the world. That we can rejoice uh, as Christ is coming. He has come once before. This is Mary's rejoicing prayer. And we await his return 
uh, together again, that he might give us all a new forgiveness, all grace, all new bodies like his. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.